Hi, you guys. How are you? Uh, this morning's a little bit different than what's typical for us, and frankly, we kind of like it that way. And uh, it's particularly ironic in light of what we wrestled with last week. Uh, but in general, we are a community, a church that likes to gather on Sunday and wrestle with the text, with who Jesus is, with what it uh, really means to be his follower, and then to spend the other six days not talking about that, but fleshing that out. Our passion is that we have a story to tell, uh, narrate, telling God's story, and yet that story is best told uh, by putting a serving towel over our arm and doing something as opposed to rhetoric, you know? So that's kind of, you'll hear us talk a lot about gathering and scattering. So welcome, if you guessed this. Last week we started a new series of teachings, a new conversation as we like to call it, called God Who. What we're going to look at is in the Hebrew scriptures, there's these, there, there's several times, there's actually dozens and dozens and dozens of times, I've not counted them, but I'll bet it approaches a hundred, where, where God does something unique and his response to that is he gives people a new name for himself. Uh, kind of like you might say to a friend, uh, you don't know that side of me. That's really what God does is people experience him and life and challenges and obstacles in ways they never have before. And God caps that, if you will, with a new name. And last week we explored this idea. Uh, really, we asked the question, what is the value of new experiences? Because one of the themes uh, of this whole study is that God shows up in fresh and challenging ways in people's lives when they experience life in the way they've never experienced it before. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to jump into the first name and... Okay, so here's a little background on why we're doing this series. About a year ago, uh, I was one of the things that was starting to bug me, so this is long before uh, we ever started Narrate, one of the things that started to occur to me is that by the nature of being human, I never deal with the texts that make me squirm. You know? Like even as a student of the text, even as someone who takes my time in the text seriously, uh, part of what it means to be human is we gravitate towards what we're comfortable with. In the words of one guy, uh, we all think our opinion's right, because if we didn't, we'd go find a new one, right? And so one of the things that really bothered me was I open the text and I gravitate to the text that, that don't leave me going, ooh, I don't like that, I don't get that, I'm not comfortable with that. And so I proposed this idea to Vern, lead pastor of Harvest, Brian, lead pastor of Journey, the mother churches of Nary, and I said, guys, what if once, every, you know, two, three, four times a year, once a quarter or so, what if we did a series together? And uh, the, it wouldn't be so much about homogenizing our churches as it would be about challenging ourselves because what we would do is uh, we'd take turns picking the series and then the other two of us would be forced uh, in our quiet times months in advance and then ultimately when we, when we taught to wrestle with the text that we would otherwise never have picked. You with me? The text that make us squirm, you know, like Leviticus, that type of stuff. And so they went, yeah, let's do that. And we picked uh, January as the first time to do a series and then we picked uh, to allow Vern, lead pastor of Harvest, to pick the first series, and he picked Names of God. And then a couple months ago, Hopkins bailed, and he decided he was doing a series on Michael Jackson instead. That's Journey. Brilliant idea. Uh, um, it, it's called uh, Knowing the King of Kings Through the King of Pop. <laughs> so cool. Uh, and then Vern and our schedules didn't align with Vern's schedule in Har at Harvest, and so basically what's happened is there's no collaboration, but... I have been forced, and we, uh, you, vicariously, to deal with texts that make me squirm. And in particular, what we're going to see this morning, this, this week, uh, I was frustrated. Like, I was literally, for moments, uh, frustrated with Vern. Like, why did you pick this text? Uh, because, frankly, the, the most honest application is a cliche. Uh, do you ever struggle with cliches? You know, Christian cliches? You know what I mean by a cliche. It's, it's a statement that's used with such frequency that it becomes trite. Or, or it's a statement that's used... Um, whether or not it's true, but it's used uh, without tact. 
someone's struggling extremely and someone um, says to them, oh, God is in control. Right? Like, it, it becomes cliche because of the way it's used. You ever struggle with cliches? You know, we, we've got a lot of them. Jesus loves you. Praise the Lord. God is in control. God is good. Uh, what would Jesus do? Maybe a bigger question, you ever find yourself actually resenting cliches? We've got a video that captures some cliches in a somewhat funny way. Hello. Welcome to the first Christian church meeting. Here are the rules. Rule number one, spend all of your free time in church. Rule number two, you're not allowed to have any fun unless you're laughing at how dumb the devil is. Rule number three, Wear t-shirts with my face on it. Rule number four, always smile and act happy. And finally, wear a stylish beard like mine. Well, I knew it! Jesus! Ah! No one told me about this meeting and nice trash you said. You said I could be a Christian if I gave up all my fun and grew this beard. Look at my beard! Well, I heard that you missed the prayer meeting for a silly game. But I had tickets to the Super Bowl, Jesus! Well, that was incredible! Lizzie Elias drove down and kicked the field goal and the rest has good! Be quiet. No, well, the football! No. I love football! Yeah, I can't believe my dad showed up. How embarrassing. Oh crap, my feet being fell off. They're totally gonna kick me out. Er, wait, is what's he saying? We're all going to play football or something? Yeah, football, yeah. Alright, stop, stop crying, rise. You can be a Christian if you promise to burn all of your footballs and never miss church again. Promise? Yeah, oh boy. Ah. Christian cliches, right? <clears throat> Here's the danger, I think, and it's something that I think this morning, uh, particularly if you're someone that's been trafficking with Jesus for a long time, um, but even if you're like just checking him out, I think this morning will challenge you. Part, part of where cliches get dangerous, in my view, is that, that we so come to resent the cliche itself, uh, what would Jesus do, that, that in turn we actually begin to resent the theology behind it, the truth behind it. Uh, you can become so cynical towards Jesus loves you, and yet we have to admit that there's some danger to developing cynicism towards that because it's actually true, right? Uh, God is in control. God will provide. Again, cliches and things that if you're jobless or experiencing incredible turmoil relationally, if you've experienced loss, uh, true statements, of course, but, but something that will make you angry if you're in those situations, right? And I think the name of God that we're going to look at this morning uh, really uh, it, it kind of goes there. Because frankly, it, it embodies cliche, and uh, the culture that we've developed around here, maybe uh, it's appropriate for us to consider a real core understanding of who God is and what he's like. So we're going to look at the name El Elyon. I think we have a slide. El Elyon. Uh, El is a common name for God. It's the one that's used in Genesis in particular, like in Genesis 1 when God is creating. Uh, Elyon is, actually means highest. So um, literally it's used in the Bible to say like that's the highest mountain. Like look at that mountain range over there, that's the highest one. Or look at that palace, there's the highest point of the palace. It, it literally means highest, and so the way it's often translated is most high God. 
what it means, though, is that God is the possessor of heaven and earth, that everything in his, is his, and as such, he's the provider. So now you know where I say we've got to deal with some Christian cliche, and yet at the same time, maybe it's healthy. Let's go to Genesis 14. Just going to jump right into the text. Some of you are going, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not supposed to do anything but sing yet. The caffeine is not in my blood, for which I apologize. Uh, okay, Genesis 14.1. About this time, war broke out in the region. King Amphrel of Babylonia, King Arioch of Elasar, King Kelamar of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim. Uh, lest you get impressed with my pronunciation, I'm totally winging it. I have no idea how to pronounce these words. Uh, fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Barisha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adab, King Sheber of Zeboim, and King Beda, also called Zor. And some of you were saying, Adam, in about 10 seconds, you just affirmed why I never read the Bible. Because I can't even understand what it says. I can't even read the words. Uh, just make them up. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to do some diagramming this morning with army guys. So translation of what just occurred is there's four kings. Hopefully we can get them to stand or else. Oh, yeah, you can really see where this is going, can't you? It, it's going to be an adventure in... Oh, geez. That guy, that's a sitting king. Oh, man. Okay, so there's, there's five kings and there's four kings. I quit. Th- that's what the text has told us. And, and they're, they're getting ready to battle. In fact, the text opens with them in battle. Now we're going to get some background information. The second group of kings, the group of five, they joined forces in the Siddim Valley. That is the Valley of the Dead Sea. Uh, Dead Sea, here's some lowest point on earth. One of the interesting things about the Dead Sea is, well, we'll, we'll actually, we'll talk about that later. Uh, for 12 years... They'd been subject to the king Kilimar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. So what the text is telling us is that for 12 years, there's this one particular king who was a part of an alliance, and he subjected these five kings in what we would know as Israel and Jordan on the other side of the Jordan River. He subjected them for 12 years. They did it. They grew sick of it. So one of them, uh, one of the kings is the big dog. So we'll sub out this guy because so, there's the Kilimar guy. He's the big dog. He's the ringleader. They're getting ready to tangle, if you know what I mean. Because the group of five said, uh, we've had enough. We're, let's get together and let's dance. Star Wars, it's a little before it's time. but So, that, so there's a battle coming. Uh, one year later, the big dog and his allies arrived and defeated the Raphites at Ashkarak. Wow. The Zuzites at Ham, the Emites at... Yeah, and the Horites at Mount Seir, as far as El Paran at the edge of the wilderness. So northern part of Israel as well as southern. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat and conquered all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites living in Hazan Tamar. So uh, translation, they're coming down because the five, oh yeah, we've, we've got a distance problem. The, five, the, the four are going, okay, well, let's, let's do this. We're game. So... So they, they decided, let, let's battle. So they arm up, and they're heading south. They're going to go get these guys. Uh, th- these guys probably came like Babylonia, that region over there, you know. But on the way, oh, oh yeah, there's six whole people groups that they passed, and they thought, oh, while well, we're here, let's, let's take them out too. We'll subject them as well. And so there's these six people groups, six army guys, that were also conquered. That's what was just said. Then the rebel king of Sodom... Uh, Gomorrah, Adam, the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, and Zeboim, and Bela, also called Zor, prepared for battle in the valley of the Dead Sea. 
They fought against King Ketelamar of Elam, the big dog, King Tidal of Goim, King Amphril of Babylonia, and King Arioch of Eleazar, four kings against five. As it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits, and as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fed, fled, some fell into the tar pits while the rest escaped into the mountains. Uh, you might know this, but the Dead Sea region is the lowest region on earth. Uh, in fact, in Israel, they don't call it the Dead Sea. That's offensive to them. They call it the Salt Sea. Because Dead Sea implies that it lacks value. It implies that there's nothing there. And in fact, it's a huge source of revenue for Israel because they mine it. The largest source of potassium in the world is the Dead Sea. Uh, and, and it's salty. The ocean's like something like 4% sodium. The Dead Sea is like 25% sodium. So you can't swim in the Dead Sea. This is trivial information, but uh, in case you go, you, you can't swim in it because it's so buoyant. And so what you do when you go into the Dead Sea is you walk into it, and then when you get about up to your waist... Uh, you turn around and you just sit. And you just, it's like you're sitting in some kind of a pool chair, but you just kind of float there. Now, if you've been in Israel for five or six days, and you've been hiking, and it's 100 plus degrees, right? And you've been hiking eight to 10 miles a day. And if you've been doing that, and then you arrive at the Dead Sea, and your thighs rub together a little bit as you walk, you with me, men? Uh, then when you get into the Dead Sea, you'll know it you'll know that you've been hiking a lot lately. Um, if, if you, the ladies tell me, if you've shaved your legs recently, you'll know it. it it's, it's really painful. Not that I've shaved my legs, but anyway. The, the victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and all the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. Uh, so translation, these guys come down here. They made quick work of these guys. They kicked their butts very, very quickly, and they head, so all of this, the kings escape, but they start heading back for home with all the spoils. I've got this friend who, uh, in early in his spiritual journey, he, he's a funny guy and doesn't narrate news around here, but he'll, he'll remain anonymous. Uh, he, he was at this church, and this service was going particularly well, and he was new in his journey, and uh, he was moved, and you could tell that other people in the, were in the room were moved, and he walked up to the pastor at the end of the service and said, wow, you're just kicking butts and taking names, aren't you? But he didn't, anyway. That, that's, that's what just happened there. They just got annihilated. One of Lot's men escaped, and oh, we already read that. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been Oh, I skipped a chunk. Uh, but one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything sorry, to Abram the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre the Amorite, Mamre and his relatives, Eschol, Aner, and Abram, Abram's allies. So this is ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, what the text has told you, and this I think actually is quite relevant and quite uh, interesting. I don't, I don't know that we can solve it. But there's these four guys who were allies, one of whom is Abram, a guy who just recently was told by God that he, he's his guy. What's interesting is that they, they had this alliance going on, and when the big dog came to town, he chose not to tangle with them, and, and yet the five kings were unable to get them into their alliance. Don't, don't know why. It doesn't really speak to why, but to me there's, there's something there that I think with more study you might be able to. There's got to be something there. Like why do these five kings not want anything to do with these four? They just wiped out the entire region. They don't touch them. And, and why can't the five recruit them? Uh, one possibility is simply that these guys were aware that this Abram character, he was blessed by God. There was something about him, and you don't want to tangle with him, something behind him, greater than him, and you just steer clear of that guy. The text doesn't tell us that, but something is going on there. 
When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued the big dog's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. The big dog's army fled, but Abram chased, him, chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all of the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So again, what we're seeing here, obviously, is these guys and their small army, they went up, they made quick work of these guys, and they took all of the spoils back for themselves. So Abram hears that this Lot guy, who, if you're familiar with the text, he's nothing but trouble. He hears that he's with these guys. Abram goes up, um, quickly makes good, quick work of them, brings them back. And now they find themselves, in verse 17, after Abram returned from his victory over the big dog and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. Uh, most people think that this is the, the, a valley that runs right by Israel, right, excuse me, right by Jerusalem. Most people think it's actually the Kidron Valley, which is a significant place in the Bible. But it's this place, apparently, long before God's people were occupying the land, was this significant place of treaties and alliances. Uh, if you're familiar with World War II, you think of the times where the big three would gather and they would kind of carve up what Europe was going to look like before the war was even over. Similar type of stuff happening here. They're, they're uh, enjoying the victory and talking, now what? So they're at this valley. I think I have a, something that resembles a palace. So here they are, they're at this palace, and and Abram goes out there. Now what the text sets up is a rhythm, an interaction between Abram and two kings. Uh, after uh, After Abram returned from his victory over Big Dog and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. So the king of Sodom, he comes out to meet him, and the text is doing this very intentionally, so you have to watch this little bit of a pattern. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of the Most High God. There's our word, El Elyon, our, our name. Melchizedek, uh, we're not going to get much into Melchizedek, but we'll represent him with Jesus. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, then you'll understand the significance of that. But there's all this conversation about who is this Melchizedek guy. I'm of the opinion that, you know, close your eyes and point to a text. Uh, there's tons of opinion. I don't think we can know with absolute certainty who he was and what his significance was, but there's an interaction that the, that the author is trying to set up here. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. So so Melchizedek, he approaches Abram, and what perspective does he offer? He he says, hey, uh, Abram, uh, this had nothing to do with you, did it? Abram, this was God. God most high. Now there's incredible debate about whether Melchizedek is a pagan king or not. I don't think it matters. It seems like this text at this point is about perspective. Melchizedek is saying to Abram, hey Abram, that victory, that that success you just experienced, it had nothing to do with you. God did that. To which Abram responds by saying, uh, then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. So if Melchizedek offers a perspective that says, Hey, Abram, uh, that, that was God. What's, what's the perspective of the king of Sodom? At the very least, it feels God-less, doesn't it? To which Abram says this, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, possessor of heaven and earth 
that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal throng from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies. Now, one of the questions is, is, uh, Abram had to have experienced a remarkable amount of stuff with God in his lifetime, right? I mean, the amount of the stories that he must be able to tell uh, about times where he saw God show up and do the miraculous. I think one of the, the questions then is why this text, of all the stories from their oral tradition that weren't preserved, of all the stories that uh, God chose to not put in the text, if you will, why this one? Pretty obscure, goes unreferenced for the vast majority of Scripture. In fact, I can't find another reference to it. Why this text? And all I can do is pose to you a question. But, but we just spent December talking about our hearts and the importance of guarding our hearts. And, and, and I have to wonder, what if, what if what we have here is a narrative about Abram guarding his heart? Faced with the situation, uh, if at the point where he had, was victorious, if you were told and after that, Abram forgot all about God. After that, Abram went off the deep end for 20 years and, and completely lost sight of the fact that he was desperate for God's provision. After that, Abram started worshiping the gods of other nations. Like if, if the text said that, none of us would be surprised. In fact, that's the rhythm of the text. People are desperate. God blesses them. They lose sight of God. God, um, it gets bad. It gets ugly. And either they or even the next generation recaptures the need for God. The book of Judges starts by saying, after Joshua and that generation died, their children forgot about God. It's the pattern. Uh, There's a whole theology, and we'll talk about it someday, called New Exodus Theology. And New Exodus Theology is built upon that. That people reach a place of blessing, and rather than continuing to be a blessing, rather than understanding that God blessed them to be a blessing, they start hoarding up. They start fortifying. They start protecting what they have, and the focus moves from how do we be a blessing to how do we secure what we have. And in doing, they completely lose sight of the fact that God has done that for someone other than themselves. I don't have to tell you that this is the church pattern. This is the pattern um, that that we, we face right now. It's really easy to be young and edgy and say we're about serving, but what will be our posture five years from now? And will our posture actually shift from, we're just here to serve? And if God would sustain that, that would be remarkable. Or will our posture become, uh, our point is to exist? One of the the council guys is constantly challenging me on that level. Adam, this is a church founded upon, we want to serve. Will we maintain that posture? I think this is a guy who's struggling to protect his heart. I think the reason the Jews in their oral tradition and ultimately God in the text preserved this text because there's a remarkable story about a guy who could have completely misunderstood why he had what he had, and he made a decision. He said, that, that receiving that would so defile my perspective. Uh, thank you very much, king of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the possessor of heaven and earth is on my side, and I'll take my chances with that, seems to be what he's saying. Now, back to Christian cliche. Uh, it's a little uncomfortable and frankly makes me squirm to say to someone, ah, God will provide. I mean, I believe it, and, and, and you believe it, 
But it gets a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because it's so easy, it's so trite. But I really think uh, that L.L. Yon is about asking ourselves the question, how are we doing with the old cliche, uh, everything on the earth is God's, and he gives it according to his desire. And thus, really the purpose this morning is worship, and we're going to help ourselves in that regard with some music. So let me pray, and, and we'll get to singing. Lord God, uh, like the, the, the text and your revelation and the narratives of Scripture and the lives of those who have followed you are based, based upon this very simple principle that you, God, El Elyon, you are the possessor, you are the highest one, that everything on earth ultimately is yours and thus everything that we find uh, we are stewards of. And yet, frankly, God, that, that simple truth is extremely difficult to live on. All the more when we find ourselves um, struggling financially, all the more when we find ourselves without jobs, all the more when we find ourselves faced with unexplainable tragedy. So, God, uh, would you help us uh, this morning and particularly in these coming days and week to just bask in the simple truth that you, God, are possessor of heaven and earth. And, and we're, we're in good shape to just take our chances with that.